As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene, was good. But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Murder in Miami is a production of iHeartRadio. Previously on Murder in Miami. On June 20th of 1985, drug smuggler Lamar Chester was killed in a plane crash on his property in rural northern Georgia. Lamar Chester died in a very strange plane crash. When you look back at it, it's nonsensical, really, that they could have come to any sort of conclusions about the cause of the crash in less than 24 hours. At the time, the initial explanation for the crash was that the plane had run out of fuel. One of their agents, Frank Baker Jr., was on the scene almost immediately. He had to be there when the plane went down. Among those who considered it more than just suspicious was Lamar's best friend, Ron Elliott, who was at the ranch at the chicken farm in North Georgia the night before the crash. Why wouldn't you have a coroner's inquest, particularly given the circumstances? They wanted to see the body. And uh, when they opened the casket, the body had already been cremated. So what happened to the plane, the wreckage? The plane was gone. And all that was left was an oil spot on the floor. Hello, Lauren. So I have an update. Okay. Detective Denmark was able to track down Clay Williams' medical records, and he actually has the file. No kidding. What, what did you find out? Well, a lot more than expected. Turns out that we're not the only ones who were interested in tracking down that file. Now, that is interesting. Who else cared about it? Multiple government agencies, Phil. Multiple ones. I'm Lauren Bright Pacheco, and this is the final episode of Murder in Miami. Six months after I'd submitted a formal request for information regarding the murder of Clay Williams, 
Miami-Dade cold case detective David Denmark reached out with news he'd located the medical report. We always hope that we're going to find something in it to be complete, but we understand when it's not because of the workload that's put on each case. We want to find everything, but if we can't, we'll take any little piece of that case because then we can explore a different avenue of that information we have. And the medical examiner is one of those sources, but we always hope to find the entire file and everything that was put in there. In this case, apparently we got lucky. Okay, now once you got your hands on Clay Williams' medical records, what immediately popped out as useful for you? Pictures. Pictures is huge. I would tell you it's in my opinion, but I think a lot of other investigators want to see what's going on. And you could study a picture or pictures a hundred times. And every time you receive information outside of those pictures, either from a file, a piece of paper, a witness, anything that regards that case, that picture changes for you. Where you were not looking for something in the background, information by reviewing the file may point your eyes in that direction, and now you have a picture that contains a very important piece of evidence. And so what kind of pictures were included in Clay's file? Those were that of the landscape, which was a flooded area beyond Southwest 217th Avenue, which is way out west, Everglades, basically. It gives the waterways, and then it gives the horrifying look of a torso that has been mutilated by alligators and affected by the sun and being decomposed. So those pictures bring all that to light. Pictures that were likely the same ones shown to Phil Stanford in 1981. And again, when you read it into someone's investigative write-up, it's different when you're reading it and looking at the picture that they're describing because words can't describe what we see and how bodies are mutilated and decomposed. The detective does their best to point out injuries and possible injuries. And in this case, the key thing is, which brings the medical examiner on board, is that the detective will point to puncture wounds in the skull of this person. And we think, as investigators, that's a gunshot wound, so maybe this person was shot in the head. But the medical examiner being the people they are, say, no, this was actually puncture wounds from an alligator tooth. That helps out a lot because now we know he wasn't shot in the head. Those were alligator markings of the alligator biting his head. The file also contained a small clipping from the Sunday, October 4th edition of the Miami Herald under the headline, Body Found in Flooded Glades May Be Missing Private Detective. Quote, a mutilated, decomposed body discovered by Florida National Guardsmen in a flooded East Everglades area may be the remains of a missing private detective, police said Saturday. There's no way to recognize him, said Metro Homicide Detective John Parmenter. The body was mutilated by alligators and probably run over by trucks, unquote. The article goes on to mention that the nude body was found floating in two to three feet of water by guardsmen while providing flood relief aid to residents. Initially, they believed the body to be an animal carcass, but upon closer inspection realized it was human. Quote, I think he was killed and dumped, said Parmenter. Though we may never, because of the body's condition, be able to prove how he was killed, unquote. 
The article also mentions the remains were believed to be those of a white man, six foot or taller, but that dental records would be utilized to identify the victim and the possibility that it could be a missing private detective. It concludes with the sentence that, quote, police would not release the name of the private detective, unquote. But it would seem that by 1983, many others were aware of Clay Williams' name. By reviewing the medical examiner report, we found out that there's at least four or five different agencies that were involved to include FDLE, U.S. Customs, IRS, Marshals, and of course, Miami-Dade or Metro-Dade back then, which will always raise an eyebrow on the detective's part, actually everybody's part, because they start understanding the amount of people and different agencies that are involved. The medical examiner or someone that was in control of that file would document as notes came in and agencies were calling in and saying, hey, you know, what happened? Who is it? Is it properly identified? This is something that definitely, again, raised another eyebrow that who's inquiring? Why are they inquiring? And what kind of information do they want? Something was special about this case. You know, if someone gets killed on the side of the road, you're not going to have so many agencies looking into it unless they were involved in something deeper that we don't know about. Here's Phil Stanford. I think that it's because Leslie was talking to the grand jury about it, and it looked like Clay's death might be connected to Lamar and these agencies. I, I had no idea there were so many of them. Wanted to get in on it, see what was there. Yeah, David Denmark said that as a detective, that raises a lot of eyebrows. And suddenly, this is much more valuable and interesting than anybody thought. I'm going to turn over everything that I've accumulated during the research of all of this to the Miami-Dade Cold Case Division. I think that they will utilize it. They might be able to close out the Clay Williams case based on what we've uncovered which would be closure to his family. Because even if Chester wasn't personally responsible for the murder, he was aware that it had happened and looks like he was aware that it happened before the body was even found. Yeah, that's certainly a possibility. A lot of that depends on Leslie's recollection of of the dates, and, and, and that's going to be hard for them to pin down. But I know the family would like to to know what happened to Clay. But if Leslie's recollection is accurate, it would support the likelihood Chester and Bob Adams were aware of the murder of Clay Williams before his body was even found, which adds additional weight to Phil's initial interactions with Bob at Intercept, having an investigative reporter call and then show up in person, asking for a man they might have just gotten rid of days after his murder, would likely have been rather unnerving. And given Phil's Washington-slash-political resume, possibly played into their mistaken belief Phil was actually with the CIA. Speaking of which... The number of agencies interested in the autopsy of Clay Williams rivals the number of agencies Lamar Chester claimed in the press to have worked with, including the CIA, the DEA, U.S. Air Force Intelligence, U.S. Naval Intelligence, and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. I did make a request through the Freedom of Information Act slash Privacy Act inquiring as to any files involving Lamar Chester or Clay Williams. The DEA determination letter I received back states, 
Regarding your request for records on Baines Clayton Williams and Tilton Lamar Chester Jr., please be advised that we have decided to neither confirm nor deny the existence of such records pursuant to various exemptions that they go on to list. And stating that, quote, this is our standard response to such requests and should not be taken to mean the records do or do not exist, unquote. In light of the number of agencies interested in the autopsy of Clay Williams and agencies Chester had spoken on record about being involved with, it's interesting to revisit the observation made by Clay's friend Ted about the computers at Intercept. He introduced me to Bob Adams and another fellow there, and I had understood from Clay that these were former intelligence people from the federal government, whether CIA, Army intelligence, and they had what I thought was an awfully large computer setup. I just was impressed that such a small office would have such a, an enormous setup for computers. I don't know what these guys accessed. But the prosecutors in Operation Lone Star had a definite theory. Intercept's computers would pop up in the transcripts in connection with the allegation that Chester might attempt to obstruct their investigation, stating that, quote, Mr. Chester and Mr. Adams had discussed the purchase of a computer that would be used to tap into various federal law enforcement agencies, unquote, and that such an advanced computer was apparently purchased for $50,000. Does the name Intercept strike you? particularly since they all had such a sardonic sense of humor. Do you think that that was just a random name that they chose, or do you think there may have been more behind the name Intercept now, looking back? Oh, I I think that they tried to uh, (laughs) pick a name that made them sound competent and, and somewhat mysterious. I don't see too much behind it. There may be, but I don't know if there is. I did think it was interesting, though, that the prosecution at one point claimed that Chester and Adams were trying to break into other agencies' computers to interfere with the investigation. Oh, I'm sure they were. I don't doubt that Bob was up to, uh, trying to do everything like he could to find out about the investigation. That's, that's Bob. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Clay 
am comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Technology and our understanding of its capabilities has obviously evolved. And Happy Miles says so has our views on drugs, especially cocaine. Which is why he views his Coconut Grove smuggling days as a bit more innocent than they may seem today. Back in the 70s, mid-70s, cocaine was seen in a different light. Cocaine wasn't the addictive drug that we found it out to be. It was a high-end drug for high-end earners. The people that were using it were doctors, lawyers, businessmen, Wall Street people. It wasn't looked on like it is now. The laws were different too back then as far as punishment went in the beginning. It was a different deal. And it was $50,000 a key then. Now it's $14,000 a key. So... You know, supply and demand, the supply is so great thanks to the government and their effort on drugs. And all you have to do is look how crooked our government's gotten from where it was. Then it was small agents in DEA and everything that were maybe trying to make an extra buck and what have you, allowed to go on, which it has been, Corruption corrupts. It goes to unbelievable levels until it corrupts absolute. We're almost at a point of no return. We really are. 
you thought at one point there was a way to shut it down. Do you think there's any way to shut it down anymore? Oh, man, what a Herculean task it would be. During the production of this podcast, I was able to reconnect Happy with C.B. Hackworth, whose paths had not crossed since their initial meeting at the Ritz-Carlton. And I'm happy to report that the two may collaborate on assembling a collection of Happy's adventures during his Adventurers Club and cartel days. You're a good writer. I love what I read all the articles you wrote back when, and I was impressed with them, so... Yeah. I'm impressed by what I know of your adventures, and I'm looking forward to hearing more. I'm actually ready to come out there, so... I've got two feds that'll write the forward to this thing, too. (laughs) Some of those stories will undoubtedly involve Happy's young protege of sorts, Jack DeVoe. If you'll remember, DeVoe is now in witness protection, but ended up testifying against Noriega. Yep. Testified before Congress with a hood on his face. Wow. With a black hood over his head. In addition to Clay's murder and Chester's questionable crash, one of the enduring mysteries in this twisting tale is the identity of the informant who turned on Jack DeVoe. Our greatest sale ever, Newmark and Lewis's presidential weekend. We believe this ring is the largest cocaine trafficking ring ever organized, said Robert Dempsey, commissioner of the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. The ring was responsible for flying 15,837 pounds of high-grade cocaine with a street value of $2.2 billion into the United States between June 1982 and November 1983. Happy Miles has long taken great offense at any innuendo that he rolled on DeVoe. You gotta remember, Jack and I were really good friends. Jack didn't know who flipped on him and even asked if you'd done it. Oh, yeah. Well, of course, everybody thinks because of the deal I ended up with that I'm the guy that rolled on everybody, which isn't true. During my research for this podcast, another former smuggler linked to the Coconut Grove guys, who wishes to remain unnamed, sent me two extremely detailed Florida Department of Law Enforcement logs from 1983, detailing 12 cocaine trips from departure, the cocaine's origin, Columbia, site of the offload, and point of entry into the U.S. The level of detail was so specific that when I ran them past Happy, He assumed they must have come from DeVoe himself because they contained information only someone with access to Ocean Reef, the U.S. point of entry for half of the trips, would have. You were also saying when we spoke about the spreadsheet I sent you about the charges of the different runs. Yeah, that that had to be from a debrief of Jack DeVoe, I'm sure, because... Nobody would have had all that information. It was just too detailed. Ah, so you attribute all the information on that to Jack? I would say so, yeah. Yeah, because they certainly had everybody's names and all the, the details. And they had the amount of the load where... And so it could be because Chester shows up on that list, but that's from 1983. So he was already being investigated before that. Yeah. Chester's name only appears once, linked with Little Darby. 
But my anonymous source added that, quote, all of the ones stating Ruddercut Key were transported to the U.S. via Darby Island, unquote, accounting for another five trips, six in total, half of the 12. My source also mentioned Jack DeVoe was trying to purchase the larger Darby Island from Chester. That would resonate more deeply a bit later when I read DeVoe's mention of it in his testimony before the inquiry in the Bahamas on June 23rd of 1984. Lamar asked me, he seemed to know about the trips, would I like to buy Big Darby Island? DeVoe goes on to state that they settled on a purchase price of $2 million and his down payment made to Chester. I bought the island, I gave him a half a million dollars, I gave him several planes after that and more money and a couple of keys of coke, almost a million dollars over a period of time. It was not all done in a day. It started off with a half a million. DeVoe adds, There was no paperwork. It was a handshake. Something he was comfortable with because... We had known each other a long time. And that... We trusted each other. Apparently, DeVoe was busted after that payment, but before the sale occurred. And the logs were actually used as evidence to indict DeVoe. All of which makes the tape you're about to hear even more telling. Here's Lamar Chester proving his participation with the feds to C.B. Hackworth. April and May, in particular, starting in December, we were working with Jack Perkins on Darby. These same agents were living on Darby. I mean, physically living there a total of every day for three weeks. And I was flying back and forth to Miami. I picked the first two up in NASA, brought them down, got them set up. There was a lot of things that preceded that. One more about guns, whether they could use guns out the boats or any other guns I may have down there for their own protection. They then brought in some guns from Nassau that had to come from the embassy because they couldn't come through customs. That Chester mentions he was working on the Jack DeVoe case. Who were working the Jack DeVoe case. Makes Chester's acceptance of that million-dollar down payment from DeVoe seem calculated especially since the man he took it from ended up incarcerated before testifying against people like Noriega and apparently is now in the witness protection plan. It also lends more weight to the comment on the Georgia Bureau of Investigation's crash report that mentions Chester was, quote, rumored to be cooperating with authorities, unquote. Here's Chester, in his own words, speaking to C.B. Hackworth about assisting a task force. Passport people? Yeah. A drug enforcement, but they were assigned to a task force. All of them were assigned to a task force. And that's where I had been meeting them, meeting with them at task force headquarters and walking across the street to the drug enforcement headquarters. Task force has got a, a commercial office building out in back of Miami International Airport. And right next to it is the new drug enforcement building. And task force, they had like a huge ready room map, you know, the huge wall charts, radios, you know, all set up in rosters, gangs of desk in the main room, and then private offices. But these guys each had a private office. Hmm. Each of them. That's the caliber. The guys are there. Here's the response of Mr. Happy Miles to that audio. What a rat. What a rat. Jack, if you're listening to this, number one, Get a hold of me. Number two, if you want to know who the hell ratted you out, 
it was Lamar. That's unreal. That's just totally unreal. How he's bragging about flying them back and forth and bringing them guns. And, you know, they needed guns on Darby like uh, I need a hole in my head going after Jack. And then then to take a million dollars from the guy to sell him Darby when he knew he wasn't going to sell it to him anyway that he'd be going away for a long time or luckily he cut a deal after doing eight and a half years in every rat hole, hell hole around the country testifying against 240 guys to get his freedom. Unbelievable. Just unbelievable. The revelation also contradicted a sort of smuggler's code that Happy maintained set the Coconut Grove guys apart. We were in a different league. And maybe that fed into the Icarus complex of flying too close to the sun. What was the mistake that Chester made? Well, not having any moral compass, not having any loyalty to everybody he was working with. It just shows who he was, and you can't live that way. Everybody should have in morals and integrity. Here's Phil Stanford's reaction. Now that it appears that Chester actually flipped on Jack DeVoe, does that open up more questions than answers in terms of who possibly could have wanted him dead? <laughs> The list keeps expanding, doesn't it? I don't think that DeVoe should be added to the list, but, you know, you've got, of course, the obvious, the CIA, but then, as Trento writes in his book, there was a CIA outside the CIA, and I think that's that's actually where Lamar and, and Elliot came in. The same guys who were running the drugs and guns trade in Southeast Asia were transferred to Central America, in fact, Ron Elliott had contact with them in the Mideast. So they're part of the list. Then you have the mob. Chester had borrowed lots of money from the mob to buy his airplanes. And if he was going on trial for basically his life, had like 300 years worth of prison time, he could be sentenced to. No telling what he, he might talk about if he got there. So you have that, you have the Law enforcement officials in White County who didn't get along with him, one was in fact on the scene of the, the crash <laughs> as the plane was going down. They might have done it on their own, they might have done it at the behest of one or another agency. And the cartels. And the cartels, of course, yeah. Who would have had the, the wherewithal to buy whatever help they needed. So. <laughs> Far from answering questions, I think the list keeps expanding. Well, it's also true, though, knowing that he set up DeVoe and tried to sell him an island and took a down payment for it before DeVoe went away for the rest of his life. That would have made a lot of people nervous because he was capable of flipping on anybody. And the domino effect of that, because DeVoe had links to the cartel. So there were a lot of people who would have been pretty nervous as to who he was willing to turn on. Oh, I agree. Yeah, absolutely. 
I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV True Crime Podcast, to live and die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For Leslie Bickerton, her sense of betrayal and loss of faith on multiple levels was a direct result of her experience with Lone Star and Chester, and it set her on a very specific path. What happened, you know, 42 years ago, that loss of security of who I am as a human being. Remember I was telling you about just being humiliated in that Atlanta court. It's amazing how just something like that can just strip you down where you become like a ghost. And that had such a profound impact on me. And you lose a complete sense of yourself. You're worthless, collateral damage. 
you know, you're worthless. It's a wound and it's traumatic and it's a scar. And so what transpired out of that, an education wanting to understand how other people think, other cultures, right? The first graduate degree uh, is in international education. And my second degree, which was um, at Brown in Latin American and Caribbean histories, I love teaching and I love working with people. So I was able to combine both of those. And as a result, I actually started with educational school gardens in Cambodia, up in rural areas. The work that I do and have been doing for such a long time is in my humanitarian work in war-torn countries. And I teach and train small rural farmers and widows overseas. And I install nutritional kitchen gardens and orphanages and schools. And I establish demonstration sites, farming sites, and all low-tech and the beauty of it is, and this goes back to loss of one's sense of self and that you count. And these people have never counted. You know, they're just brushed to the side. There's like a, an anguish in their faces. And it's something I'm really sensitive to. Well, the irony is that because I am a woman, I can go into places that a man can't, and specifically, say, Afghanistan, okay, or in, in Jordan. So I can live and work with families, and also, I'm not a threat. I'm a woman, right? That allows me to understand, say, another culture, another people, their history, and to also establish trust, it seems like your path has almost been to move into these places where, you know, the drug trade has wreaked havoc. You're almost on the cleanup crew. Yes, right? More ways than one. This past summer, I traveled to meet Bickerton in person. Oh, wow. It's like little islands nestled. And my gosh, there's a house nestled on that island. Like a cabin, see it? Your destination is on the left. Now in her early 70s, she still strikes a commanding presence. Hey! There's Melbourne. <laughs> Good boy. <laughs> Tall and athletic and not prone to artifice, as we pulled up, she was sporting jeans and a baseball cap while hard at work watering the botanist-level garden that frames one side of the rustic, picturesque property she shares with her husband of four decades. Okay, so... There was nothing here, okay? This was all literally just rubble, okay? There wasn't even grass growing. So this is all perennials, okay, and pollinators. Wow. Look at the little bee, look at. Aw. Sleeping. They're nesting in the flowers. Bickerton radiates a crackling sort of energy. There's a shifting vulnerability to her, at times almost brittle at other times edgy, sharp, but always with a bit of defensiveness and self-deprecating humor. I didn't blame it on my mother because I was breech birth. I came out feet kicking. My mom tied me on a rope when I was two years of age. That's probably I, where you get your wanderlust. Wanderer. She says, I could never keep track of you. Inside, Bickerton's home exudes an eclectic creative aesthetic filled with comfortable dog-friendly furnishings. 
The walls are lined with art, both displayed and propped along the sides awaiting display. During our tour, she unwrapped several of them, a series of enlarged photographs taken in Afghanistan during Leslie's humanitarian travels there. So they built this, I call it the Chinese wall, this huge wall, pom-pom, and then within it was going to be the farm and a couple of buildings. And this man, single-handedly, they would throw the mud up to him and the straw, and I've got photos of it, and he would build them in rectangular shapes, and he built the entire wall. One photo in particular stands out, of Bickerton standing in the center of a small group of young men in a rural setting, holding a small sandy brown puppy in her arms. You're wearing this beautiful fuchsia traditional garb with a sky blue scarf and a very Western looking orange zip up. It's noteworthy, not just because of the moment it captures and the fact the men were breaking social norms by standing in close proximity with a woman, but because of the calm joy Leslie radiates. It's funny, I've been all over the world and done a lot of good because I teach and I train farmers, food and water security. And this place just just grabbed my heart and it's, it's second home for me. My mom said, she said, you're at peace with yourself. Here I know in a war country, war time country. She said, you're in your element. She said, you found your way. It's been an unlikely and unpredictable path that's led to this point. One intensified by the uneasiness that's lingered in her life since Lone Star, but further compounded and complicated by the fact that Leslie met her husband of four decades, Mike, during the Lone Star Grand Jury. Was it the um, Grand Jury in Houston? Mm-hmm. There was one other person there, nobody else. It was just me and somebody else. And that other somebody else is the person that I married. And he was there to testify. I didn't know for what. I didn't bother to ask him. But the connection that we had is that we were both hardcore sailors in the waiting room, struck up a conversation. Now a doctor. That husband was once very much involved with Chester's smuggling operations, which makes one of her last memories of Lamar Chester, after she was married and shortly before Chester's crash, that much more revealing. It was down in Key Largo that Lamar shows up. Mike seems to think that it was just by sheer luck that Lamar happened to be on the same road that we were on, which is the northern part of Key Largo that connects Homestead to Ocean Reef. So Mike thought, oh, just by chance and accident that Lamar's following us. I mean, just so they bumped into him. I'm like, knowing everything we know about Lamar, Lamar doesn't do anything by accident. We went out to dinner with him. Mike must have invited him to stay over or whatever. And so Lamar was in the house with us. After Mike turned in for the night, Bickerton says she had what would be one of the final interactions she would ever have with Lamar Chester. Lamar then in the house told me that he wanted me to come back to him. And I was like, wow, this is what you do to your friends? How disrespectful that was. And I told him no, flat out. But there was something about, it was just something about Lamar that I almost felt sorry for him. 
I think he knew something was coming. It's weird. And then he, you know, he got, he got murdered. As for Chester dying in a plane crash shrouded in mystery, here's C.B. Hackworth. That really wasn't the ending that anybody had, anybody had expected. Except maybe Chester. Here's a snippet from one of his calls to C.B. We've tried to improve the quality of the tape, but it definitely sounds like Chester saying, they're going to kill me or make me run. They're going to make me run or they're going to kill me or make me run. Revisiting his extensive recorded interviews with Chester has given C.B. Hackworth new insight into Lone Star, which he will further explore in an upcoming book. It worked out well for some of the targets, and then it ultimately, you know, didn't work out well for Lamar, except to the extent that he did manage to extend this whole proceeding and turn the tables on the government and put the government on trial for so long that he did live out the rest of his life without going to jail, without ever doing what the government instructed him to do or any judge instructed him to do. He did live life on his own terms until he died. In an op-ed letter Chester wrote, published in the Gainesville Times December 14th of 1984, Chester wrote, quote, the indictment against me was not brought by the DEA, but is an IRS indictment brought by the U.S. Department of Justice based on what the government says is my net worth with the importation of marijuana and cocaine as probable sources of income. Those issues may very well have to be decided in court before a jury. I am in the fifth month of a motion to dismiss the indictment based on the falsification of evidence, leaks of grand jury material by federal agents and prosecutors, and gross governmental misconduct. If I am successful with that motion, I will definitely tell my story to the public. If that motion fails, then the story will be told in Gainesville at trial. In any case, the truth will finally out." Unquote. Six months after that letter, Chester was dead. Here's Phil Stanford. It did continue to trouble me. It, it haunted me. What happened in your world after Chester died? Well, you know, I was back in D.C. when I got the word from Bob that Lamar died in a crash. I did some work, investigative work, to make some money. But no luck with uh, congressional offices or with newspapers. Uh, but what I needed was a job. And finally... Finally, I got one in Portland, Oregon, which I guess was the only place my reputation hadn't caught up with me. Got a job with the Oregonian initially as a reporter, but after a few months, they made me a columnist, and I was one of two Metro columnists, writing three times a week, telling stories, which is really what I wanted to do. It was going pretty well. And then here came the Frankie case, the news that the uh, head of the Corrections Department had been stabbed to death outside his office. Eventually got crosswise with the management of the paper because I was raising questions. I was doing because I was doing my job. And I got, I got pushed out. Phil and I revisit the killing of Michael Frankie in the Murder in Oregon podcast. It's compelling content, as are the books Stanford wrote after leaving the Oregonian.
I wrote several books about official corruption in Portland and, and also in Washington, D.C. I did a book about the Watergate break-in. And after a few years of that, I started getting interested again in Miami. As he struggled to make sense of his Miami experience, Stanford decided to start his own investigation. Lamar's claims, I'd been very skeptical of them in the, in the beginning, maybe because he just hadn't done a good job of explaining to me or to anyone else what it was that he did with the CIA. And it wasn't clear to me that he even knew that he was working for the CIA. I think he was working for naval intelligence at one time. I think he was working for someone who was connected to the CIA at one time. But he didn't know. And so to come to some sort of understanding about what I got involved in, I started trying to go back over some of this territory. And I went down to Georgia, talked to Bobby Lee Cook, sitting in his office in this Somerville, Georgia, little town in Georgia. And he's sitting behind his desk. And I say, did you think the, the plane crash was accidental? He says, hell no. He was quite convinced he was murdered. And I said, well, tell me what he did for the CIA. And he begged off. He said, I really don't know, you know. Uh, you'll have to ask Ed Marger, who was the other lawyer, just down the road about 60 miles. And he told me that he didn't think that either Lamar or Ron Elliott had direct contact with the CIA. And this is a guy who'd won a gray male defense before. And he said, you ought to ask Bobby Lee Cook. It was Bobby Lee Cook who came up with the idea of the gray male defense. So they sent you back and forth between the two of them. Yeah, and I, <laughs> I said, of course, I already talked to him and he sent me to you. So it didn't really answer any questions. And of course, nothing I found out reduced in any way my feelings that Lamar had been murdered, that his plane was sabotaged. A feeling that would be reinforced by information he'd later learn back in D.C. Made some phone calls, got in touch with a guy named Ferris Bond, who had been with the U.S. Justice Department at the time and on a team working on Lamar's prosecution. He told me about the time before the trial. Of course, they were more than just aware of Lamar's gray male defense, they had arranged for someone from the CIA to come speak to them and, and tell them what was going on. And so he said, some guy came, uh, he said, it didn't, didn't look at all like what you'd imagine a CIA agent would be. I guess he was sort of short and spindly. Put his briefcase on the desk, and before he said anything, he told them that if he talked to them, they would not be able to reveal his name. And they said that, as lawyers, they were bound to tell the other side what they knew. I guess in discovery it was an issue of that. And he put everything back in his briefcase and walked out. And that was the end of that. So what do you make of all of this now? I mean, that's another interesting layer. It, it had been, of course, a very intense experience for me. and I'd never really figured out, was Lamar telling the truth when he said he was working with the CIA or not? You know, even looking back at it now, after, after we've done all of this, you know, it has been useful to me to, to revisit it again. Well, certainly as the 80s unfolded, his claims became much less far-fetched. Oh, yeah. It 
allowed me to see, it made me see that these things are real, especially with the Kerry Committee and the press eventually. There really was no doubt that there had been a drugs for gun trade going on, that it was somehow connected with the government. Lamar was anything but silent about it. One of the remarkable things about this to me is that when Lamar's plane went down June of 1985, there was a story in the New York Times about how this indicted drug smuggler had died in a plane crash, but no mention at all of the gray male defense that had been written about in C.B. Hacker's paper. Yeah, that's a very strange omission. Yeah. As I was wrapping up the research and interviews for this podcast, I would connect with a most unlikely and surprising target of interest. You will never guess in a million years who I just got off the phone with and who I was able to track down. Who? Morgan Cherry. You gotta be kidding. No, and the good news is we had a really interesting chat. The bad news is that he is, not surprisingly, unwilling to speak with me on the record and declined my request for an interview. I bet he did it very elegantly, too. This is a very smooth guy. (laughs) I can neither confirm nor deny that he was smooth. (laughs) This is the guy whose name Lamar dropped in the Bohemian Tribunal, said it was his contact with the CIA. Ron Elliott told me that Morgan Cherry was Lamar's CIA contact. Did you ask him specifically about his involvement with the CIA and DEA? Phil, I can neither confirm nor deny that we had any such discussion. (laughs) That's, That's fitting. The once conspiracy concept of covert operations and shadow wars has percolated closer to the surface over the years and continues to do so today. My dad used to quote the opening line from a legendary radio detective show that ran from the 1930s to the 1950s. Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? The shadow knows. It's something that kept popping to mind throughout this production. But... What happens in the shadows will likely stay there as long as it profits and protects the people in power on both sides. As we wrap up this season, I just want to thank our small but powerful team of Nick and Evan and Taylor who have just brought an incredible expertise and enthusiasm to every single aspect of this production. And Phil, I just want to thank you so much for being such a wise, (laughs) witty, and wonderful storyteller. And so thank you so much for, for sharing this one. It's been great working with you. We're all so appreciative to the incredible array of people we've encountered and interviewed during this process, those named and unnamed. We also want to thank you, the listener, for your time and support. Murder in Miami is a production of iHeartRadio. Executive producers are Lauren Brett Pacheco, Taylor Shacoin, and Phil Stanford. Written by Phil Stanford and Lauren Brett Pacheco. 
Audio editing and sound design by Nicholas Harder, Evan Tyre, and Taylor Shacoin. Featuring music by Evan Tyre, Bill Mayer, John Murchison, and Taylor Shacoin. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get the stories that move you. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.